G'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 62 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. Well folks, I've crossed the hump, here I am sitting at the big four zero. I'm Steve Vischer and joining me as always is Grant McHeron. Uh, Grant, uh, we survived the party on Saturday night so we're doing well. Yeah, I think so. It was a pretty good aviation themed party. I mean, gee, there's a shock, aviation themed. Who yeah, knew that was go, coming? Yeah, go figure. Yeah, I know. There were pilots, there were uh, spacemen, there was thunderbirds, there was even a stork. Yes. Yes, my friend's wife who turned up uh, dressed as a stork, very topical, seeing as she's expecting, so. Yes, exactly. And she won a prize, and very fitting as well. There you go. Mm. Well, Steve, it was uh, great to join you in the celebration of your 40th orbit, but, uh, mate, we need to get on with this episode because uh, I think it's going to be a bit of an intense long one because of our very special guest who's waiting in the wings. He's in the green room ready to come out and say hi. I reckon it will, and, of course, you've been hearing us uh, talk a lot lately about aviationadvertiser.com.au, and, in fact, he was on the show briefly in our last episode. But uh, joining us on the line now, the chief, the head honcho, the boss of aviationadvertiser.com.au is Ben Morgan. G'day, Ben. G'day, Steve. Stephen Grant, how are you? Very good, mate. Thanks for uh, making the time to come on the show. And we thought it's high time that we introduce you to the audience and uh, have a bit of a talk about Aviation Advertiser and uh, about yourself and uh, how that's all came to be and where it's all going. Yeah, look, fantastic. And obviously, uh, just before we really get too far in, uh, I want to congratulate you two on a fantastic product. Uh, What you're doing is you're really bringing information to the wider community and uh, this medium, this technology that you guys are taking uh, advantage of is so exciting and we're really pleased to be able to be part of that. Oh, we appreciate it, mate. It's, um, Thanks, it's, mate. it's a bit of a mutual admiration society, isn't it, really? Because we've been looking... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. <laughs> Oops. We should, we should tell the audience, actually, that uh, we, we came across your site probably uh, 12 months or so back, I guess. And, uh, you know, I said to Grant at that time, you know, we ought to approach these guys and see if they want to advertise with us. And uh, as, as is the case with our to-do list, that sort of got a bit far down the list. And uh, before we knew it, you actually contacted us. The internet, Steve, is a, just such an exciting vehicle. And, uh, you know, if we, we maybe go back before I really had any involvement with the internet, I guess like everybody else, um, I had a pile of aviation magazines. You subscribe to all the, the different products that are out there in the market. And I guess more specifically for me, I was really interested in the aircraft, what we're buying and selling and um, I guess uh, the types that were trading and values. So uh, I had a pile of newspapers. Uh, everyone knows the the industry uh, rag, so to speak. Uh, and I guess for many, many years, I used to look at these paper products and think to myself, wow, you know, the internet is really evolving you know, there must be a way that we can bring this information to the aviation industry and community in a far kind of simpler, easier uh, format. Uh, And it took a while, but in uh, 2008, uh, we took the jump. We decided, look, really, it's ready to happen. So we created Aviation Advertiser, and uh, it's been such an exciting adventure. Every day has been really new. Uh, and we've done some things that I guess uh, we would never have also thought we would be doing as a online magazine and, and classified service. Yeah, and it's really much more, uh, I find, than uh, than the advertising and the classifieds as well. There's a great news portal on there, and you've got Paul Phelan on there, uh, one of the most highly respected aviation journalists around. Yeah, look, um, meeting Paul as well was one of those fantastic experiences, and uh, uh, it takes us back to, uh, I think it was around August of 2008, when I met another industry identity, which came from, I guess, a call for help 
uh, Aminta Hennessy uh, from the company at Bankstown, uh, Clamback and Hennessy, uh, was engaged in a in a very serious battle at the time with the Bankstown Airport a Limited Company over uh, lease renewals. And I uh, I ended up having a at first it was just an email, but a telephone discussion with Aminta. And it, you know if we really have anyone to thank uh, for how we've evolved and what we've become today, it really actually is Aminta Hennessy because Aminta grabbed me and said, "You listen, boyo, uh, you've got an opportunity to." help this industry and allow people in aviation that don't necessarily have the money or the capability of getting their message out, but you've got the ability to help them do that uh, and you've got to help. And she she kind of grabbed me and took me down to the airfield with the camera and the audio gear and said, come on, let's film this. Let's show the aviation community what we're talking about, the truth of the situation, not the PR and the marketing that the airport operator would have you believe, but taking cameras and audio right down to the airfield level and showing people where the bulldozers were digging up very large parcels of land and how this was now starting to encroach. And many people would know a lot of the magazines from time to time would touch on the topic. But yeah, I think the real honesty is a lot of the magazines and a lot of the mediums covering uh, the issues in aviation, I think have also been largely very cautious in what they publish. So I I guess you could say I just decided that if we were going to do this, we just had to put things into print and say, look, this is just the situation. And uh, quite famous for once uh, saying directly to Kim Ellis that I'm going to call a spade a spade here, mate. I think uh, the situation that you're creating at Bankstown is uh, is really an act of bastardry. And, uh, you know, we've taken on from that and we've just decided, you know, it's about time the people in aviation deserve the media and I guess the resources uh, of the media to be used in a manner in which it helps create positive change rather than just report on a few topics and then just leave it alone, as we often see with uh, newspapers. This is this is the thing with um, with general mass media, and I, you know, I bang on about this a lot when I'm talking about podcasting theory in general. Sitting here in the niche market world, we can spend the time and, and, and really drill down into issues, whereas um, particularly when you're dealing with mass media and politicians, it's all about the you know the 10-second grab. And aviation just really isn't one of those things that, you know, unless it's a bad news story... Um, you know, an aircraft crashing or something like that doesn't really make the headlines. And, uh, you know, particularly we've seen it down here with Moorabbin where a lot of that airport's been carved up and taken away uh, all in the name of development and making money for the people that own it now. Uh, and this is the sort of thing that you're talking about here where we can, you know, we have Absolutely, an Steve, absolutely. And what's going on right now, it's arriving at a real particular point where it's becoming very public. Um, we're now starting to see uh, a lot of organisation uh, from associations and groups which have been formed around particular airports uh, where we are witnessing really inappropriate development, inappropriate to a degree that we'll use one example, which is actually one of the hot topics right now, which is uh, the Save Evans Head um, campaign. Mm. The uh, Richmond Valley Council, uh, which by the way, I think the slogan for the Richmond Valley is a valley of surprise and it certainly uh, (laughs) is given a great deal of uh, justice in reference to what they're proposing. But the Richmond Valley Council are literally uh, railroading and forcing through a development. When I say railroading and forcing through, we're talking about a, a lot of kind of targeted, I guess, actions from the council to avoid engaging in anything that would basically bring their actions under scrutiny or jeopardise the development, but they're trying to force through a retirement village, uh, which will be situated right at the very end of two of the existing runways. Now, uh, many of our readers will obviously, sorry, listeners would be very aware that Evans Head Aerodrome has three runway pavements, which basically form a large triangle. So you bring at the end of where two of those runways intersect, we're talking about a fairly large, specialised uh, retirement facility. You know, I, I don't know where these guys kind of... Uh, 
um, went to school or where they obtained their degrees or uh, how they even perceived to have any form of um, common sense about them. But placing a retirement village uh, at the end of a couple of active runways, in my opinion, kind of classifies as just a, a prime example of the ludicrous stupidity uh, which is going on at many of the airports now around Australia. And this is obviously all occurring now well down the track of the federal government's sell-off during airport privatisation. And in this particular case, an airport which was handed over from the Commonwealth under a very special document which is referred to as the um, deed transfer agreement. And the council uh, at Richmond Valley are literally, I guess they're stuck in a quandary. They've got on one hand this exceptionally large parcel of land, um, which I, you know, I just imagine that for uh, members of council who have a property development background and also largely the commercial uh, property development world that lives around these local government entities, this is just I mean, this is like, you know, A-class, 10 out of 10 prime development space. The problem is, though, these airports form our national aviation transportation infrastructure in the same way our freeways and our highways form our national road infrastructure. So by encroaching on these runways and building further and further into the airport perimeters, it's only kind of realistic that you will see the airport's facilities with regard to aviation further and further reduced until finally you get to a point uh, where we'll use Essendon as an example. It's a fairly extreme example, but you have the massive population living right on the doorstep, just 200 odd metres off the end of runways. Uh, And once the population increases, the next thing that happens is a very obvious thing noise complaint. We don't want aircraft noise. Oh, my kids are being woken up. Mm. You know, and why? Why should <laughs> yeah. this occur? You know, everyone knows where these airports are and the stupidity I guess is the airports were originally located away from the centres of population. That that was a very intentional thing because the designers of these airports, the government at the time when they put them in place, were mitigating the risks of potential fatality yeah. by locating them away from towns. And it's only been in the last uh, 30 years that we've now started started to see local government uh, council planning now saying, oh, no, no, we we can just bring the population right up beside the airport. They're not putting anything in the leases or anything like that that says you acknowledge that there is an airport nearby and you will make no noise complaints. That's a really interesting point because these deed transfer agreements actually do. And this is is one of the, yeah, this is one of the amazing things. The deed transfer agreement actually says Government shall take such action as is within its power to create land use zoning around the aerodrome, which will prevent residential and other incompatible developments in areas which are, or which may be, adversely affected by noise. Well, they blew that. Well, Grant, you're you're absolutely right. They've blown it. But the more concerning aspect of the behaviour which we're seeing is the fact that local government, uh, not just in Evans Head, but in other areas, are now coming up with trickery, ways to basically make it appear that they're now satisfying the deed transfer arrangements to legitimise their developments. And what we saw at Evans Head and the information that's now being passed down from the uh, Evans Head uh, Memorial uh, Aerodrome Committee is the fact that the council have altered the types of aircraft that are permitted to use the aerodrome. And they've done this to seek a change in the noise profile of the aerodrome. And by lowering that noise profile, it then makes 
under a kind of perfect world, it makes development of these types of things more legitimate. This is all predicated on the basis that the population in Evans Head is never going to change and therefore the aviation activities will never change. And we know that that's just not the case. As the population expands and we're seeing the fastest period of population explosion in Australia, we're actually going through it right now. As we see these populations increase, we can almost guarantee that uh, domestic air travel is going to continue to increase. We can almost guarantee that the demand uh, on general aviation services are going to increase so we can honestly expect to see more aircraft movements. That however is not really going to fit the council profile so reducing the aircraft, lowering the noise, allowing these developments uh, that's really what they're focusing on and I guess you know as bluntly as I can put it it is just so un-Australian. These are Commonwealth assets that the taxpayers in this country owned. These are airfields that the taxpayers in this country for the last three generations uh, have invested in and developed. They've been handed over and entrusted to local government, uh, who in many cases now across the country are simply selling them off, carving them up to make a quick dollar, and it's just wrong. Taking their little cut from below the table, but we're not allowed to say that officially. But, you know, Grant, what an interesting question it does kind of present. Who's benefiting? What's the relationship between the council and the development company? Is there something going on here that maybe needs to be investigated? Hey, we're talking millions of dollars here. It, uh, you know, something's just not right. And what is what is the mood of the people in the town? I mean, it's in a very picturesque part of Australia. It's uh, right up in the uh, the far north coast of New South Wales, right up reasonably close, in fact, to the Queensland border. So I guess retirement age people would probably look at this as an ideal place to go to. But uh, do we know what the general mood of the people in that area is with regard to the Look, Steve, uh, I, I guess if you took a broad snapshot, you're going to find a mix. You're going to find there's elements that think it's great. There's going to be elements that are going to be steadfast against. And I'm pretty certain you'll also find elements which don't really understand the benefits of it. So they don't really have a formed opinion. I think really the concern in this particular instance is what happens once these airports for these rural locations and regional locations, what happens when these airports have been stripped to such a degree that in another 10 years time, when say the area of Evans Head expands further and maybe someone like Rex is wishing to operate from that place and location, uh, how much money will the local government there then need to raise in order to invest back into expanding their aerodrome? to satisfy the population growth in their region. This is the whole question of cost and opportunity kind of cross-benefiting. You know, do we take the fast money now? Uh, is, it, uh, is it a situation that this is just going to inject um, several million dollars very quickly into the town? We've all seen in this day and age how money goes uh, virtually nowhere in large sums. Or do you take the kind of uh, longer term view that that airport is an essential component of their connection, not only to rural Australia, but to the major metropolitan spaces. And uh, should they um, should they be protecting it? Well, that raises immediately the situation where, uh, you know, if they do shut down Evans Head or totally reduce its capability and uh, force runways to be degraded and so on, the organisations, the airlines such as Rex will go somewhere else, in which case Evans Head will just wither and die because if you don't have that airline coming in regularly, people aren't going to be able to get down to Sydney for meetings. They're not going to be able to have their life on the coast versus their life in, this, in the uh, metropolitan area. And they're going to go somewhere else where they do have that. And you know they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. They're looking at short-term gain by converting this airport into uh, property and so on. And they're missing out on the fact that in half a generation, no one's going to want to live there because there's no easy way to get there. 
and, and look, you know what you've just alluded to in the final part of your uh, your statement there, Grant, is so correct, and that is uh, most political entities and local government entities are not working for the uh, ten to fifteen year plan. They're working hard enough within the time space that they have to simply get themselves reelected. Uh, yeah. And then you know it, it is look, it it's common knowledge. It is a far tougher road for a politician. Uh, or a general manager of a council to tackle the issues that are going to be infrastructure or essential services related that you're not going to see an immediate benefit for for the next 10 years. Um, and they're unpopular because it usually requires spending a little bit of money and not seeing an immediate uh, you know, satisfactory return. The problem is we need to start getting back to that. I think the politicians in this country need to start realising that, you know, especially in New South Wales, we are in the situation we are in in New South Wales, especially here in Sydney, because the government has been too short-minded to invest for the long term. Everything has been focused on instantaneous gratification. And as a result, the Sydney Metropolitan Transportation System is uh, vastly degraded. Uh, and we have huge challenges as a state that we now need to climb over if we want to re build uh, and become a, a leader. The aviation industry is going through the exact same scenario. Uh, we went through airport privatisation and we went through the airport sell-off processes under the guise, and if I try to paraphrase as closely as I can, that by selling off these aerodromes or handing them off to local communities, those entities would be better placed to be in touch with their kind of local population mass to seek the type of development that was needed to grow that aviation network and to make it more efficient and more competitive. I think it is a load of bullshit. It is utter crap. None of it has worked. Airport privatisation in this country has driven airport and aviation-related usage charges to record highs. It has driven the aviation industry into decline, and it has virtually bankrupted a national industry that without, this country can hardly survive. What we see on a local government level is really important because until we start affecting change at that level, we're not going to be able to tackle some of the larger situations. So the local government level is very important to start seeing positive change in. So here's a question for you. What about Tamora? Tamora Airfield there, the museum, the town, they're all right behind the airstrip. What's different there that isn't happening at Evans Head? Is this because we've got a local council there that gets it? Is this because there's a local council there that looks far enough ahead and understands the benefit of an airport and how if you invest now, you're going to get a return in the future and it's going to make the world a better place? Or is, is that the difference? Grant, look, I think what you raised there is actually really significant because we can't paint every local council and aerodrome with the one brush. And if we take a look across the national footprint, we're going to find some standout cases. And I think Tamora is an unbelievable example of how if the local government takes a proactive view towards its um, airport infrastructure, um, that it can actually turn its airport into a centre of commerce, a centre of tourism and a centre of economic growth and drive. Uh, they get it. They have executed something which I, I think they've done a fantastic job. I don't think it's necessarily perfect. I don't necessarily think it's bad, but I think that they get it. They've done a sterling job at at least trying to drive a positive result. And I think all indicators uh, to anyone who has been there is that there is growth. There are new hangar developments. There are lots of aircraft that use that facility. And let's try and keep it in perspective. Tomorrow is not close to any really large centre of population. I mean, it's out there. It's not as far 
far as some communities, but they have done an amazing job at creating an aviation economy and a tourism uh, economy from an airport. I see what's happening there much more similar in terms of culture to what I uh, saw when I was living in the United States. And I, you know, I often think that when it comes to advocacy, we can quite often look at what some of the alphabet groups are doing <coughs> over there in the States, particularly when it comes to things like user fees. And we talk about that a lot on this show. We don't seem to see that sort of advocacy going on here in Australia, or at least I've not noticed it over the 20 years I've been in aviation. Yeah, look, advocacy is such a, it's such a difficult topic. And um, obviously for aviation advertiser, we, you know, we, we are tied, whether we like it or not, we are intrinsically tied up in the middle of this. And we recognize as well that in order for us to have a successful business, what we need is we need a healthy and we need a successful aviation industry. Um, there's no point in any industry having a product or a, a medium uh, whereby people can promote their services if in fact it doesn't matter if they promote, they're still going out of business. We really need to focus on the issue of advocacy and um, my honest to God feeling uh, is that we as an industry in terms of all the different advocacy bodies need to start taking a serious look at what we are actually doing and whether we are getting the right result. Um, I know that there are a number of organisations and I I don't want to pick on any one organisation but I'll use the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association for example. The Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association are engaged on a range of topics but the facts remain. Aircraft-related usage charges have continued to climb and they have not shown any sign of curving or slowing. The cost of aircraft fuels have continued to climb with no sign of it changing. The aircraft economy in terms of the number of aircraft sold, whether it be new aircraft or used aircraft in this country, are nowhere near the levels where they really could be. Uh, So we really have to start asking ourselves a question. What should we be doing as an advocacy kind of um, economy inside of the aviation industry and how can we make every dollar that we spend and every hour that we put in produce a large positive result and I really my personal opinion is that we have to start getting back to basics okay we need to start getting back to the basics of what programs are there promoting students to go forward and take on a career of flying or to invest in a future of recreational aviation. We need to go back to the schools. We need to actually educate the children of Australia, the people that are going to become the next generation of leaders and business managers. We need to educate these people that that aviation is in fact fun, that aviation is accessible, that aviation is something that they should want to pursue. Uh, And we need to open up the avenues of accessibility. We need to be promoting the network of flying schools around Australia far more uh, effectively than what we are now. Um, And we need to start taking the industry out to the customers. We need to start delivering the services that we provide in a form in which we can educate the the mass population and attract business. Aviation is no different to the computing IT industry. It's no different to um, the automotive car sales industry. It is no different to any other industry. We have to sell ourselves as an industry and we have to get out there and communicate our message. And we're just not doing that. I don't turn on a television set and I don't see TV ads anywhere uh, promoting aviation, promoting the the concept of flying. You just do not see it. Yet I can open up a newspaper and I can open up any mass periodical and I can see plenty of information on a whole host of things. How do we do that? Well, this is obviously the challenge. 
Um, yeah. Whether we need to start taking steps as an industry into forming a cooperative alliance amongst all the aviation businesses for an industry marketing fund, I don't know. But it would seem to me that during a period where governments in this country were handing out more grants, more free money, I would love to know just how much of that money was actually focused and centred into aviation. I would like to know just how many organisations in aviation were provided access to those funds. And I would probably like to argue that if our advocacy channels are doing the right thing, they would be seeking those funds and helping steer it into the community of aviators and aviation businesses to help growth and to help provide for a resurgence rather than a decline. Is it the case that organising people in the aviation industry is like the classic phrase from IT and most other projects? Herding it's cats. It's like herding cats, yeah. Yeah, herding now, cats, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> many groups have started, many groups have tried. You've got the alphabet groups, you've got all these kind of um, bodies that have, have started with high ideals, they've shifted, they've changed, they've maybe hardened the arteries, things like that may have happened. Is it worth trying to get everyone together when maybe people are pretty jaded? Or is it better to go down the path of just saying, right, well, we're going to do everything we can to make a difference. We're going to start showing how it can work. And we're going to start bringing people together by leading by example. And those who get it and those who understand will come along with us. And it will just form rather than going around and getting everyone to thump their chest and talk about it at first. Grant, absolutely. You know, yes, yes, uh, and yes. And I would like to believe that that's what we are doing as an organisation. I mean, let's be clear about this. Aviation Advertiser is not some multi-million dollar powerhouse media business. Um, It was formed literally off my bloody kitchen table in uh, my terrace house at Rosebury in uh, Sydney. Um, (laughs) You know, there, there were weeks in our early days where, you know, myself and and uh, the developers and our telephone guys were literally all sitting around the kitchen table. And as long as we had our laptops, our wireless connections, we were in business. Hey, it was happening. It's exciting days. The reality is, though, what we've done in a short space of time is we've taken on things that, in my opinion, should be the domain of some of the larger advocacy groups. I mean, we commissioned our own report into the effects of privatisation, and we issued that document to the industry last year. And that report was a telling account of the impacts and the things that are going on at these privatised airports. You know, why Why did it take a business like Aviation Advertiser, which really our principal business is just reporting on things or aircraft classifieds, why are we in a situation where we are commissioning these things and taking these challenges on? Well, we're doing it because it's not happening. These things aren't occurring in the vehicles and the avenues where they should be occurring. And I think that that is a serious concern for the industry. Um, and I can well understand as a member of the aviation industry myself and as an aircraft owner and whatnot, I I can appreciate and I can understand why people have, in many cases, given up. However, that's not an answer. We can't give up. We have too much invested as an industry to simply put our hands in the air and go, oh, look, bugger it. You know, the situation with CAS is bad enough, let alone trying to promote an industry where it's just not looking that rosy. Well, my argument is the opposite. No, we should be out there doing it because we we actually have an amazing industry. We have amazing infrastructure. We have amazing destinations. We have incredible cities and townships where our product is established. Uh, we should be taking the positive view and going out there and trying to communicate just how much benefit we can provide uh, rather than focusing on uh, just how much is being taken away. And the other thing is too, we have huge distances to cover in this country and that's something that, that aviation is head and shoulders above 
above everything else uh, when it comes to transport and if we could create a culture where people would think of that as an option whereas my opinion is that most people wouldn't well that's that's a win I mean you know that's that's something else to get into the public consciousness and I, I guess Steve I would also just want to convey because I don't want to seem like I'm beating up on the um, on the advocacy groups because I said look I it's, I guess in one manner I am but in uh, <laughs> in another manner no I'm not because I just really want to make clear I think the advocacy groups play such an important role in this um, this economy uh, and industry and I think that they all have a very important relevance in each area however you know the challenge that goes out is not just a challenge that the advocacy organizations need to accept I also believe that this is a challenge that needs to be accepted right down to the smallest business the largest airport operators and the smallest airport operators um, this challenge needs to be picked up by every person who participates in this industry to say look enough's enough uh, if we are going to go forward as an industry we really need to start creating change we need to make certain if we are aviation businesses and we have to do business with these airport operators we have to start coming together as an industry and showing airport operators that we will not tolerate the continual increases in prices uh, we are going to have to start working as an industry to start driving reform and driving change to ensure that this that this industry has a future and in some cases this is happening uh, we are seeing in in certain areas of the industry uh, almost 180 degree changes in policy given uh, people I guess showing a clear reaction of uh, of people power and I, I think this is something we have to be very committed to and we have to see through now there was a uh, in the real estate industry there was a lot of bad moves and bad vibes and so on and, and a guy came called Genman wrote the book on real estate mistakes and started setting up the Genman way of doing things. Um, some people may know of it, some people may not, some people may like it and so on, but they, they set it up so that uh, if you believed in what they were doing, you could get yourself accredited and those who believed in it would follow it along and, and look for those kind of groups. So where we were talking before about the idea of just getting out there and doing it, it is perhaps by leading by example and setting up, I'd, I'd like to use the, the, the health tick thing, but I know that that's been kind of bespoke merged a bit here and there, but, but you know, set up a, a set of standards, a set of concepts and ideals that uh, as an av- aviation industry or organization or, or just even advocates, we aspire to and we hold ourselves to be um, measured against. And then everyone who believes and agrees with that comes online, gets verified they're going to do that and, and joins in with the tick, so to speak. Is that an option? Grant, look, there are so many options available. And, you know, one of the lessons that I learned in uh, IT, in running a, a IT retail business, is that um, you really need to focus on creating change by doing it in one percent and it's a bit of a uh, you know it's a quite a common I guess practice in retail environments but if you work on the policy of making one percent change every day in your business towards creating a better business a better marketing platform and a better way of attracting customers and a better way of executing your product then it's natural that after the full 12 months is gone that your business at a minimum is going to be 360 percent better and you can do one percent very easily versus trying to change a hundred percent of your business at at one time so you know to me this is an industry thing where we have to start saying well it has to be cleaned up and we have to really you know look at promoting this industry and getting out on a on a street level and start working with the schools and start working with the universities and start promoting our product Um, make it happen every day 
Now, Ben, we talk a, a lot about uh, politicians, and, and uh, that's been quite a central theme here. Uh, now, you're up there in New South Wales, and uh, of course, the Labor government there has just been, uh, you know, had their backsides handed to them in, a, I think, the biggest landslide in history. So you've had a major change of government there. I noticed down here in Victoria, for instance, we now have a, a state minister for the aviation industry. Is there any hope uh, in, in that regard up there in New South Wales? Look, uh, if it's not, it needs to be. <laughs> it's as simple as that. I find it bizarre <laughs> that in this country, in this vast um, amount of land that we have, that such a considerable network of infrastructure doesn't have dedicated ministers. Um, I find it um, bizarre that Anthony uh, Albanese, which I I nickname him all too easy because (laughs) I can't understand how anyone could possibly manage a portfolio of the amount of items that he manages. Uh, You know, I know what I'm capable of doing in 12 months. And, you know, I'm a relatively busy person. Uh, How in any definition this person believes that he is able to provide the aviation industry uh, with enough of his time so as to provide a safeguard for the infrastructure, I think is absolutely baffling. You know, he does not have enough time. He is the minister for everything. He's all too easy. Actually, I, to be honest, I, I, I'd like to send a big shout out to Anthony Albert, all too easy if he's listening. Um, Anthony, I know you probably get about 60 letters from me every year, um, <laughs> but I, I just appreciate if maybe you could answer some yourself and do it honestly. Yeah, rather than getting the lackeys to respond. Yeah, don't, I, I don't love get receiving started. letters from Karen Gosling, and I'm sure you're a lovely person, uh, whoever you are out there in Canberra, or that's if you are in Canberra, but uh, hey, Anthony, uh, take up my challenge and how about you respond uh, in honesty in your handwriting so I know you. And maybe we should get Warren Trust back on the show and uh, he can uh, give him a bit of a stir up. I'd, I'd openly uh, invite a debate with those uh, individuals. Yeah, that'd, be, that'd be an interesting <laughs> one for sure. That'd be great. <laughs> And look, you know, guys, and that this is where you guys are so lucky. I mean, you're so lucky with this audio format that uh, you're in a position where you can just say things as they are. And if I have to kind of bracket what 2011 is about for Aviation Advertiser, 2011 for us is about saying it as it is. A spade is a spade. And with things like development at Evan's head, it's bloody ridiculous. It's un-Australian. And in my opinion, the people who are responsible for this development and the approvals panel for the local government, they need to be investigated by the ICAC uh, to determine just who's getting paid because this is ridiculous. Whoever cooked it up should be held accountable for it because it's just not right. It's pretty blatant. Well, you know, uh, what's next? Are we going to start seeing housing developments being approved and put right on the side of freeways with the driveways exiting onto the lane. I mean, how long before you'll see a semi-trailer mow down a family of five in a small car? Uh, You know, they'd bury them. But, you know, it seems okay to develop airport land because they're like, oh, it's just, you know, it's all this clear space, right? Mm -hmm. Well, no, wrong. That clear space is where you perform an emergency landing. (laughs) That's why those airports were built with those spaces. They weren't left clear for no stupid reason. Look at the encroachment at Essendon. A lot of that's being done by the current owners. They're, they're always saying, oh, what if we were to do this or that? And, oh, that would shorten that runway and you'd lose your jets. And there goes most of your income from the airport. Guys, if you want to take a, a snapshot of uh, acts of airport bastardry, and really maybe that's a section we need to set up on the website now. <laughs> no, I like that. <laughs> you need to really I'd – like, I'd really like you guys to invite Mr. Gavin Bird, Mr. Gavin Bird, who's the owner of Archerfield Airport, 
Uh, Mr. Gavin Bird's also, I believe, the president of the Schizophrenic Association, uh, and uh, he also runs an airport. I've never seen anything more schizophrenic in my life than a property developer who also thinks that he's promoting aviation by uh, restricting aviation, restricting aviation services, making his airport too expensive. I think they call that two-faced, don't they? We have to be very careful because I've received letters from Mr. Bird's lawyers regarding articles that we've run on the website. But look, you know, behind the mockery uh, is a very serious uh, problem, and the problem is these airports were sold to people who were never qualified by the government. And it raises a serious question there. How did the government qualify that the individuals or the corporations that were buying these airports had any serious interest in aviation? Yeah, well, the motivator uh, goes from one of being one of public interest and public infrastructure that was built by public money to, uh, you know, a motivator of uh, profit. And um, that's always going to be a, a problem. We see that here in the railways where I work at the moment, where, you know, uh, the, the railways in this state were, were basically privatised and, you know, the, the imperative becomes profit at the expense of customer service. Well, Steve, yeah, we, we saw that at Bankstown. I mean, have a look at uh, what went on at Bankstown. We saw... One organisation by Bankstown Airport, Hoxton Park and Camden as one package. Yeah. Uh, and I believe recently we saw the closure of Hoxton Park and it was rumoured that Hoxton Park sold for about 200 odd million dollars. Now, I am absolutely deplored by it. It is disgusting. Someone, somewhere, at some point in our federal government handed over to a private company taxpayer Commonwealth land for very little money and these guys were allowed to close that airport and sell it and make a prime profit, an incredibly prime profit for what? And this is the question I put to the government. Did it create competition? Wrong. Airport parking charges have gone up astronomically. Airport landing charges have gone up astronomically. And anyone that could possibly say that selling the airports off created enough competition to spur development in the aviation industry, how in God's name has it created competition when you sell all the airports to one company in that well, one area? That's what, just do it. you think someone's going to pack their aircraft up at Bankstown and relocate it to Camden because they're going to get a better deal from the same guys? Well, that's the thing where they, should, they shouldn't be allowed to buy them if they're within certain distance of each other. They, they discovered that in the UK where um, I believe it's British Aircraft um, Airports Corporation. They wound up owning uh, a number of airports in the London area. Well, they had to sell a couple because there was no competition. There was no, no drive to make things better because, hey, where are you going to go? Well, we own that too. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, look, it's uh, it's very sad. I doubt we'll ever see a retraction of the policy that we'll see these airports come back into uh, federal government ownership or even state government ownership. But the best that we can hope is that the federal government finds the motivation and finds the spine, I think is the word we're looking for, um, to stand up to these uh, industry bullies and says, no, I'm sorry, but we're going, to in we're going to enforce price gouging prevention and a whole range of other things that will make things a lot harder for these companies to tear holes into the side of the aviation community. Well, there was some hope, I know, with uh, with the recent election where the balance was sort of being held by independents, many of whom had a country kind of portfolio and back, background, that uh, maybe the whole issue of aviation would come front and centre because uh, there's no one, no, no one quite like a country person to indicate how important having an uh, airport link is. So everyone was sort of indicating that uh, this, this could be great for the whole aviation industry because it would bring things to the fore. Has that happened? Well, look, I wrote ministers to uh, uh, the um, independent MPs uh, when they came uh, into the spotlight, and uh, I did get a response back from uh, Tony Windsor's office, 
Um, and the response was, oh, given the proximity to the election and la, 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 and again, it just goes into the circular file with obviously no response. And, you know, this is highlighting something which we're starting to see is that I think people are getting fed up with politicians. Politicians are, in so many cases, such an incredible letdown to the people of Australia because they are just so full of it. Um, you know, <laughs> yes. oh, we'll make all these promises in the world. Oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And I, I just honestly think these people know they're never going to get round to half of it. But as long as it sounds good, as long as the rhetoric resonates the right type of political message, uh, it seems to be enough. And I just look, I think part of the political or social consciousness of this country uh, really needs to evolve to a point where people just start voting no, you know, get out. <laughs> well, that, that would mean that you've got to educate the masses that they've got to stop thinking about their bread and circuses, aka barbecues and footy games, and um, actually think about it and go beyond the sound bites. And there's a lot of people out there who don't want to think. They just want to get on with their life. And, you know, the politicians are saying all the things and they, they know, they know in their gut that the politicians are just full of it. And yet, they still go and vote for them. And, and you know, if, if we had a vote none of the above option, it would be an amazing election, I tell you. Well, funny when you talk about Tony Windsor, though, I think there's a lot of people with baseball bats waiting in his electorate for him, but let's not go down that path. <laughs> yeah, look, one of the, I, I tell you another very interesting area of the aviation advertiser uh, business, boys, and that um, has been our aircraft classifieds. <laughs> this seems like a bit of a segue, but um, the... <laughs> I think it's about time we had a segue after all that serious stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not. It, I, I've... It, we'll go somewhere here. Um, when I started the classifieds business, um, aside from it being tough going, because you know a lot of people in this country were, you know, they use the newspaper. You know, the concept of advertising an aeroplane online really is a bit foreign. But we've seen a very, very big change in that. We, you know, here's the plug bit component. Uh, we are very lucky. We are now the largest aircraft marketplace in Australia. We have more aircraft advertised on Aviation Advertiser than in any other product. And, and that's been a just an amazing result for our team. Our guys have worked so hard day and night, uh, week on week to try and build that classifieds business. And through that classifieds business, I have been given this incredible opportunity and that opportunity has been to talk to so many people in aviation across Australia and to understand why they're selling their aircraft. And I'm really sad to report that so many people who are selling their aircraft are doing so with the principal concern being that the cost of owning the aircraft is now so high that any benefit the aeroplane gave them for purpose of business um, or even recreation is just, it can't be kind of um, amortised. So the aeroplane ends up on the market. And we are seeing now a period where the largest number of aircraft are coming available in the last 10 years. And I think it's very sad. I had one really long discussion with a farmer out in the middle of Australia. It has a very large station, a station that's so large you literally require an aircraft to fly from one side of it to another. And he was selling the aircraft because of a regulation that was brought in that required the drug and alcohol testing of his pilots you know and he just made okay. the comment he said i am thousands he said thousands and thousands of miles from anyone uh, yeah, and he point. said and i have to be able to set up a program that i can demonstrate that i'm doing appropriate drug and alcohol testing and like he just like i'll use his words he said what monkey was handed a typewriter to come up with this regulation <laughs> you know like yes i understand and i appreciate that we need rules and all the rest of it but does anyone at you know the, the department uh actually take a look at what they're creating? Do they really think about how this stuff's going to be rolled out and how it affects people? Well, they see a one-size-fits-all. You know, oh, it works for the airlines. It's got to work for everyone in aviation, doesn't it? Well, no, and this is the thing. No, it does not. <laughs> it's as simple oh, exactly. as that. No, it does not. 
Yeah, but they don't get that. They they think, oh, works for the airlines, works for the large guys in GA. Everyone else, uh, what the heck? They're just all the small guys. They'll go to RA and we'll be done. It'll be easy. Well, it's a uh, you know, it's an absolute quagmire. I'm uh, often shocked when Paul Phelan files uh, stuff through to my email box, uh, and I'll be reading of the types of things that are going on and the types of actions that have been taken against people on the way in which the Civil Aviation Safety Authority seems to wield its power within the industry, and it uh, it baffles me. I mean between the fact that the regulation has become so bloated and so cumbersome, I'm surprised that some businesses manage to remain compliant just by opening their front door. You know, I'm surprised that we don't see CASA officials closing more businesses because I can't see how many a general aviation company out in amongst the field can remain compliant in the picture of uh, complex regulation. It's just, it's staggering. It ensures that um, you know there's always something they can get you for. Well, I can't say that's a very good thing. I mean, we are following three unbelievable stories. Um, I can't really give any detail out because these stories haven't been made public yet, but we are following three unbelievable examples of how the officialdom and the individuals within the officialdom believe that they are a power answerable to nobody. Um, And there are serious concerns there. There are concerns that these people are left in positions where they can effectively decide the financial fate of businesses and people's own personal assets. And I think that uh, in many cases, we really we really need to start heeding some severe caution from this information that's coming out because this type of thing can't continue. If you're uh, anyone's interested in following this, what they should be doing is going to the Aviation Advertiser website uh, and taking a look at the regulatory ructions section of our website. And inside of this section, uh, you're going to start to see a great deal of information which is now being published on individual organisations which have come under investigation uh, wrongfully uh, and have resulted in damage to their business and uh, and all the rest of it. So it's a concern. It's a concern that many aviation businesses still have to live with in this country, which is not right. Well, Ben, I tell you what, that's um, been a very heavy session, mate, and uh, it's, it's probably about time we lightened it up a little. Let's have a uh, talk just before we finish up here about uh, what we're going to be doing with with you guys over the uh, in the near future and uh, how we're going to structure that. It's uh, People can already go to aviationadvertiser.com.au and see a couple of uh, distinct Disturbing shots of Grant and I on the website. Aren't they great? <laughs> Scary. Oh, they, look, they look great, guys. Uh, although this artwork will be changing very shortly, we have your lovely new logos uh, on the site very soon. Yeah, actually, cool. Ben, if I could just ask you to Photoshop another 50 kilos off me, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So you probably worked out why I don't have my photo up there. <laughs> it, it took me way too long to get my second chin gone, mate. I didn't have time for you. Look, I'm just so excited for you guys. I really am. You know, I know I've probably pushed this three or four times already, and trust me, listeners, uh, I'm not being paid for any of this. Look, I really believe in what you guys are doing. You, you're creating something uh, which is so unique, but it is it is just giving the ability to convey such great messages to such a large audience. And uh, I, I, look, I just know I, this, is an out, this is an outstanding product. It's going to be very, very successful. We are so proud to be able to support you guys as plain crazy. And uh, we're looking forward to being able to involve you guys in as much that we possibly can that we're doing. Uh, We are also involved in a whole host of things and we would certainly hope um, that you guys have the time to uh, come out on site with us. I know we're heading to NatFly uh, towards the end of April and we're definitely all looking forward to catching up with you guys. But uh, yeah, 
hopefully just to involve you guys in the excitement that is Aviation Advertiser, the growth that we're experiencing, and then also our quest and our journey in trying to create positive change within the industry. As you'd no doubt be aware, mate, we've been running a, uh, a bit of a survey here of our audience just to uh, get, get an idea of you know what people are looking for. And um, some of the things that you're doing here in Aviation Advertiser are really going to, I think, uh, work well with what people are asking for. A lot of people are wanting more news, and I think by us having an association with Aviation Advertiser is going to allow us to have better access to better journalists, a, a more regular news stream, and it's going to allow us to do more work in the GA and RA side of stuff, which is something that we've we've really sort of set a goal for this year. So uh, it's it's a win for us, obviously, uh, in many ways, but it's a win for our listeners too. And this is I'm really positive about the way this is going to work for us. Yeah, look, I think it's going to be great. I think uh, you know, I I just can't stress it enough. It's going to be so much fun, and that's guys. Uh, when it's all said and done, that's why we do all this. Uh, we want to be able to have a little bit of fun, obviously make a little bit of money, hopefully. Um, but <laughs> uh, the, the, yeah, that's it. in aviation, the fastest way to create a small fortune is to start with a large one. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Uh, uh, the old ones are the best. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I didn't read that in a joke book. <laughs> no, it's, it's all it's in the it's in the aviation MBA first chapter. It is. Yeah. Um, it's when you get your uh, your pilot's license, you're handed that card. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, if you want to start an aviation business, understand this. No, look, it's exciting <laughs> stuff. And look, we, we love working with industry. We're meeting all these new people every day of the week. We receive so many emails. I receive literally hundreds and hundreds of emails every month uh, from people within the industry saying, hey, Ben, look, we've got issues or how do we participate or um, this is going on. Could you give us some perspective or could could you write a letter to the minister for us? Look, it's fun. It's just fun stuff. And, uh, you know, I welcome you guys to what we're doing and anything that we can do to help the plain crazy uh, format, then let us know. We'd be happy to assist. And we really appreciate that, Ben, and we can uh, look forward to having you on the show uh, quite regularly, uh, broaching all sorts of subjects, uh, some heavy like we've been doing tonight and perhaps some a little more lighthearted as well. And, in fact, uh, Ben's going to come back and join us a little bit later on in the show. And, uh, Ben, we're going to do a bit of a uh, aviation market roundup. Thanks, Steve. Uh, I'll be back uh, very shortly with you guys and we'll uh, we'll take a look at the market. Flight experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, flight experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience. Experience. Well, folks, we want to have a chat now about a new service that's being offered to us by the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. Grant, it's called OnTrack, a new online visual pilot guide. Yeah, that's right, Steve. It's a multimedia presentation that supplements the VTCs and VFG and shows you video of what to expect as you're approaching and departing the seven airports that it covers. Yeah, it's really handy to be able to uh, click on this website, click on the airport that you'll be planning your flight into or out of, and uh, actually being able to click on specific videos showing uh, arrival and departure procedures and uh, being able to look at the videos and uh, seeing exactly what you'll be looking for. And uh, that's a good way to keep it fresh in your mind, particularly if you're uh, not used to using that particular aerodrome regularly. Yeah, I mean, you can get a lot of information information from the various uh, printed documents but 
there's nothing quite like seeing a video which says, oh, this is what that reporting looks like and oh, here's what to expect from over here. Uh, it really does help cement the information into people's minds. As an example, one of the departures that you can do from Moorabbin Airport here in Melbourne is to uh, head out to the north uh, of Melbourne via the Kilmore Gap. And here's a brief example of how OnTrack describes this departure for you. If conditions permit. When clear of the Moorabbin CTR, head towards Sugarloaf Reservoir. Be aware there may be traffic at 1,500 feet entering Melbourne CTR. If possible, listen out on... Yeah, so really handy stuff. It also gives you information on uh, runway numbers uh, and tells you uh, hot spots around the airport to look out for, particularly uh, handy when you're looking at crossing active runways. There's, uh, it's very good at pointing out the uh, runway incursion hotspots. That's very, very handy information to know too. It also gives you additional information for uh, finding a way around uh, military zones. Uh, it's also got information there for RA aircraft as well. So, Grant, a very handy service. You can find that at casa.gov.au slash OnTrack, and we'd really be uh, interested to know what you folks think of it. Please do uh, let us know if you've been using it and what you think of it, and we'll see if we can't get someone from CASA in the near future to come and have a chat with us about it. Absolutely. www.casa.gov.au slash OnTrack. Hi, this is Max Flight. This is Milford from Flight Time Radio. You can catch Grant and Steve each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with their Australia Desk Report. Over on our podcast, Steve and Grant send in a bi-weekly update that covers flying in the Southern Hemisphere. Our listeners look forward to the Flying Down Under segment for the great interviews and a taste of aviation life from another point of view. www.airplanegeeks.com If you get a chance, visit flighttimeradio.com to learn a little about our radio show and podcast. Well, I've interrupted the show long enough, so let me turn all you playing crazy back over to the guys and their usual outstanding content. Cheers from America. And joining us on the line now to talk about the upcoming Barossa Air Show is uh, Steve Ahrens. G'day, Steve. G'day. How are you going, guys? Good, mate. Welcome to the show. Now, we've uh, we've received a few flyers about the upcoming Barossa Air Show, and uh, I tell you what, I couldn't think of a more picturesque place to hold an air show. Uh, you're absolutely right. The picture is the best way to describe it. The, uh, the rolling Barossa ranges as a backdrop to these marvellous aeroplanes flying around is absolutely sensational. And this year, it's even more sensational because we've had some early rains and the are just looking at a picture green at the moment. The whole field, in fact, is a picture green. Where exactly is it in the Barossa? It's about halfway between Rollins Flat and Tanunda. In fact, it's right next to the, and, and this is a, a plug for the Jacobs Creek wine, um, the, the famous Jacobs Creek runs right next to the airfield and uh, an overshoot on runway 26 and you could literally finish up in Jacobs Creek or, or at the uh, Jacobs Creek Wine Centre. It's about 30k north of Adelaide, about an hour's drive. Okay, so it's on May the 1st, uh, 2011, and uh, let's have a talk about uh, perhaps some of the pre-events. We've got uh, a, the night before, actually on the 30th of April, at the Lindock Hotel, uh, will be a talk by uh, our, our favourite, our friend of the podcast, Matt Hall. Yes, really looking forward to that. It was just an opportunity that we couldn't let go by, um, having Matt there on the day of the air show, um, and, and he was just keen to, to do whatever he could to promote the event, make his services available, so we thought, well, we, we had to do something to give um, other plain crazy people, I guess, the opportunity <laughs> to, to meet Matt in person and, and what better way than to have dinner with him the night before. Uh, that's at 6pm on the 30th, $50 a head, and it's a three-course set menu. And also we'll be, uh, speaking along with Matt, will be the Chopper Chicks, uh, Bridget and Billy Joe Keese from uh, Barossa Helicopters. And uh, we've heard they've got a quite an interesting story to uh, life story to tell as well. So that'll be a really entertaining night. 
It will. It will. Um, the, the the Barossa Chopper Chicks are, are local girls. Um, I guess um, a, another a- avenue there is the fact that they were actually students of St Jacoby School, um, and it's the St Jacoby School that put this event on. Now that's an interesting story in itself. Tell us about how it came to be that a uh, that a primary school is holding an air show. <laughs> Well, it started out, um, in fact, it started in 1998. Um, my son was at St. Jacoby School at the time, and uh, he came home and he said, Dad, I did a survey at school in our class um, on what we should do to raise some money for the school. And everybody decided it would be a good thing to have a fun day. And just at the time, I was reading John Johansson's Flying High book, and uh, I put that down and thought, well, what what better way than um, to invite people along to come and watch some aeroplanes and maybe we could have a bit of a barbie or whatever, invite John Johansson up. So I rang another um, a local chap, Rick Burge, from Burge Family Winemakers, because uh, he was good mates with John Johansson, and uh, said to him, what do you reckon? We, we bring John up and maybe we can get a few other people to fly in and um, we can sort of make a bit of a day of it. And, of course, it just grew from there, and next thing we know, we're holding an air show. And what I say to people, when people say, you know, why an air show, my answer to that is, well, what else would you do? Absolutely. Like I say, uh, all those wonderful aircraft sort of swing in in around the grapevines. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> they should do that out here at the Yarra Valley in Victoria. That'd be pretty spectacular as well, I think. Yeah, you're too right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we, we try to keep them out of the vineyard, though. <laughs> yes. That's, yeah, that sort of stuff's for afterwards, eh? Yeah, there's lots of arrest of wise in there. You don't sort of fare too well. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, what sort of aircraft can we expect to see? I note here on your website that uh, Chris Baru and uh, Warren Stewart will be there. Yes. Uh, also some, uh, some vineyard aircraft and a bike race a bike race that's interesting yep we're going to have matt hall race um a former paris to dakar competitor um on a dirt bike we've done this in the past and yes it is quite spectacular bear in mind that this runway is 600 meters long the approach from the east comes in over a, a railway line and a vineyard um, so the bike hasn't got far to go there and when you uh, approach from the west it's almost like coming onto an aircraft carrier so the, the ground really comes up to meet you so the bike really hasn't got a lot of choice he either becomes airborne at one end or he finishes up on a train line at the other end <laughs> um, and somewhere in amongst all of that he manages to get up to about 160 kilometres an hour uh, which in itself is pretty unreal. And the rooster tail coming off the back wheel uh, is quite spectacular. The plane's definitely got probably a bit of an advantage in that he doesn't have to worry about traction like the motorbike does. But uh, we still haven't really seen a good photo of it yet because the bike's going that fast that he's blurred. Uh, they can get the, the, the plane in focus, but they don't seem to be able to ever get the bike in focus. I wonder what Matt will be flying. I wonder if he's bringing his race. Is he bringing his race plane down, do you know, or is he yep. bringing some other one? Yes, he'll be there in the um, MXS star. Oh, excellent. excellent. Well, we actually uh, we had a chance to see that aircraft at uh, Avalon recently, so it's looking in fine form. Uh, we, we're really looking forward to that. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't get down to Avalon. I couldn't get to Echuca, um, but people that I've spoken to that have been at both, uh, you know, all commented how well um, a display that Matt put on and how exciting it was. 
Yep, now we've also got uh, some model aircraft doing displays and some helicopter rides as well and some stalls. Now, those are uh, stalls full of uh, kids' amusements, I guess. Yeah, but there's something for everyone. Um, it's a real family day. So the stalls, you can expect to see uh, just your, your art and craft things, you know, from Ugg boots to, to hats to jewellery, all that type of thing. There's amusements there for the kids so that if mum needs a babysitter or something, uh, the kids have got something to do. There's, there's static displays. We've got, um, we've actually got the Morris Club coming, which is going to be quite interesting. Hmm. Um, there'll be static displays of um, old vintage engines and tractors. Um, we've got the um, vintage military coming along. In fact, we're even going to have a, uh, is it a 26-pound cannon fired on the day cool. Fa- fairly big thing should should echo a little bit through the valley I think <laughs> just a tad okay now the other thing is of course that aircraft owners can actually fly into the air show uh, there's, yep. a, there's a link on your page but uh, they need to be there by 10am is that right yes yes we ask everybody to be in by 10 there's usually a few that, that might get tangled up with the weather a little bit and come in a bit later so you know that's that's not too bad but if we can get everybody in by 10 so much the better the actual air show display itself proper starts at 11 o'clock and of course it becomes very hard to, to bring anybody in while you've got a display on we, we try and keep the display tight so that there's always something happening all the time when we run through to half past three in virtually 10 minute intervals in amongst all of that there's pretty much something happening all the time Excellent, excellent. Now, uh, unfortunately, Grant and I will be unable to attend, but uh, Team PCDU will be there. Uh, our very own Baz Sheffers, who is a resident of South Australia, after all, uh, will be dropping in. I think he's flying his uh, sports star over there. I didn't actually oh, ask yeah. him about that, but I, I guess that's how he's doing it. So uh, Baz will be there, and he's going to take a recorder along, and uh, so well, hopefully he'll be able to grab an interview or two to play on a later show, so that'll be good. Yes, that'll be excellent. So um, tell us about your sponsors, mate. Our, our major sponsors who um, have been really fantastic is, is Langmile Wines, um, Thornton Financial Group from New York, the Barossa Helicopters, and uh, Recreational Pilots Academy from Murray Bridge. It's, it's really been fantastic the way these guys have really got behind the event and actually given us some serious cash to, to help carry it all off. Oh, that's great. Absolutely. Okay, so that's May 1st, 2011, uh, once again at Roland Flat there in the Barossa Valley in South Australia. BarossaValleyAirshow.com.au and uh, Steve, tickets are $20 for adults, $5 for children or $50 for a family. So uh, good value for that. It is. It's very good value. Excellent, mate. Well, uh, thanks for spending some time with us. It's quite late at night as we uh, record this and we know we grabbed you at a at very short notice, but uh, we appreciate you coming on to tell us about the airshow. Thanks very much, guys. It's been a real pleasure. And moving on now, we're going back to Avalon. This time we're going to be speaking to the crew of the Royal Australian Air Force's uh, brand new Wedgetail aircraft. Really interesting, and uh, we got as close as we could. Uh, but of course, uh, a lot of that was uh, quite classified. But uh, well, we've had an interesting chat there. And also, uh, Grant recorded uh, three quick interviews with some RAOs aircraft. So uh, let's hit that now. Flight Lieutenant Lee Stanway and uh, Flying Officer Alexander Joel, welcome aboard PCDU. G'day. How you doing? G'day, okay. We are in the lee here of your uh, magnificent 737 Wedgetail. And uh, Lee, you're one of the ACOs in the back there? That's correct, yes. Okay. And Axel, you're one of the pilots up the front? Yeah, that's right. 
Okay. Lee, we'll start with you. Um, how did your career path into the uh, Air Force go? Uh, well, I originally joined up as an air surveillance officer, uh, operator as a troop in yep. uh, 1984. Um, did that for about 18 years and then changed over to be an air defender and we're now called ACOs. Yep. Um, and for wed- my transition into Wedgetail, I was part of the Boeing test team that went to Seattle to work mm-hmm. with Boeing on this okay. aircraft to eventually bring it into service, which nice. we have now. Okay. And yourself, Alex? Yeah, I, uh, straight out of high school, I, um, I joined direct entry uh, into the Air Force and uh, went through pilot's course uh, through uh, BFTS uh, on the CT4 and uh, two FTS on uh, PC9. And from there, I went to the uh, had a short uh, stint on the Hawk 127, and then uh, came to the Wedgetail after that. Okay. Yeah. Now, how did you train to get ready for the uh, Wedgetail? What what did you do specific for the 737 systems? Uh, we actually have a, a full conversion, so we have a sim, uh, simulator at, at uh, Williamtown. Where two, uh, yes, it is. It's a Cat 5 sim. Yeah, and uh, it's a it's a six month conversion, which is uh, run uh, initially uh, by uh, uh, Boeing, and then we get handed over to the military instructors uh, to do the differences to uh, to be able to do do the um, I guess the mission side of the system. Now, are you able to tell us um, how much difference there might be between a standard 737 and what you've got in there? There is quite a lot of similar, similarity between uh, you know, the, uh, the 700 glass cockpit and, and ours. Uh, our, our navigation and uh, primary flight displays uh, are Boeing off-the-shelf products, uh, so is our FMC. Uh, uh, we do have some uh, mission systems in there. Obviously, we've got uh, air-to-air refuelling, um, self-protection countermeasures, and also some, uh, some tactical information that we can see up the front. But apart from that, it, it flies... Very similar to a, uh, you know, a Virgin Blue 737. Uh, interesting, you mentioned Virgin. A number of the guys flying this airframe have gone through and flown with Virgin. You, you came straight in, but I'm sure you've spoken to some of the guys. You're able to let us know some of the tales of what it was like being in uh, civilian gear. Yeah, sure. No worries. Uh, I think the uh, you know the, the main difference would be for us uh, a mission is. Uh, taking off and coming back uh, eight hours or ten hours later after a mission being uh, in an area of operation. Uh, whilst they were working at Virgin Blue, they obviously did uh, quite a lot of uh, short sectors, so they had a lot of more, a lot more takeoff and landings, and uh, and they had very quick turnarounds. So you know, <laughs> I think uh, some of the war stories where the 30-minute uh, turnarounds were quite uh, quite a bit of a shock, but uh, they got used to them, and uh, after after a while, they were able to you know do all their stuff and make a coffee before they had to go uh, go turn around again. So yeah, um, yeah there is a big difference um, actually flying the aircraft uh, it is very comparable you know that you'd think that there may be some aerodynamic issues with uh, with the radar but yeah. the, the only major difference is uh, between say the 800 and, and us uh, is uh, it's a little bit draggier uh, okay. lower down so yeah. which which does help us if we need to slow down I guess and your typical mission profile is up high orbiting and uh, just keeping an eye on everything yeah that's right yeah so so we're cleared uh, the the airframe's cleared to 41,000 feet okay. so we can operate uh, in really any altitude uh, depending where uh, the mission commander who is, is in charge of the back-end crew uh, would, would like us or, or think it's optimal for us to operate. Now, you're talking about long-duration missions sitting up there orbiting. How do you pass the time? Uh, we, we've got, a, we got a, a few systems that we, we have to monitor and obviously uh, making sure that we've got enough fuel and uh, making sure all the, our diverts and, and primary uh, uh, airfields are all, all good to go. Obviously, yeah. the weather can change quite dramatically in, yeah. uh, in that period, so... Uh, that, that keeps us quite occupied and it, uh, we also obviously uh, as a crew, as a whole crew, uh, go through go through different uh, emergency scenarios to make sure that we're still swept up on all the systems. Talking about the aerodynamics and obviously the, the radar or, or whatever you call the device up there, it's, it's yep. quite prominent and would have uh, quite a, uh, an aerodynamic disadvantage to you I guess. 
are you conscious of it there compared to uh, flying an airframe without that on it? And particularly in the roll, that can you can you feel the, the forces acting, you know, on that when you you're, you're banking and all that sort of stuff? I, I don't really have a, any baseline to compare it off. Uh, yeah. Not flying the the, uh, uh, the class or the uh, I guess the green aircraft, yeah. uh, but. Um, from what I'm, I'm led to believe, there isn't actually all that much of a difference. Uh, they've done a very good job in integrating it into the uh, into the into the existing aerodynamic uh, uh, flow of the aircraft. So, and uh, there isn't any uh, stability uh, issues or anything with the uh, with the, it interrupting airflow with the rudder. So, yeah, it's it's actually quite good. Now, Lee, um, working a bit further back down the aircraft, as much as is possible, I guess, tell us what it is that you do. I'm actually uh, a SCO, Surveillance and Control Officer, so pretty much um, we're putting together a recognised air picture with, with the information we're getting off the radar um, and making sure it's all all good and everything's where it should be, as well as uh, performing some control missions. We've been doing a lot of uh, control missions out of Williamtown with our Hornets and Hawks and also operating with the Navy as well, so we're trying to integrate the whole system with uh, all three services over time, so yeah. And with the advent now of the the Super Hornet, of course, I guess uh, this is, I guess this generation of technology is what that generation of technology is designed to work with. Yeah, we're hoping so. We haven't had a chance to work with the Super Hornets at the moment, so because uh, they've only just sort of come online and come up with with, uh, with their operating capability, so we haven't had a chance really to work with them. So we're hoping that'll happen in the future to be able to do some work with the Super Hornet. There's only a few of you in the back. Um, was it just like less than ten total complement? Yeah, yeah, generally we run run with a mission crew of seven in the back. Uh, so mission commander, systems officer, senior controller, a couple of controllers, and yeah. uh, then we've got an EW specialist on board as well. And uh, you're all talking to each other and uh, able to share data across screens and so on? Yeah, pretty much. Each screen in the back is uh, identical, so you can uh, set them up specifically for whatever role you're doing, but it sort of gives us a little bit of redundancy because we have 10 in the back, so it provides us with that little bit of redundancy as well if we need them. Um, But yeah, we've got some internal nets in there that we can sit and talk and and pass the information around on board the aircraft, so keeping up to date with what's going on and where each particular part of the aircraft is at any particular time. So. Okay. Now, I understand that you've got uh, fewer people on board than the, some of the older older equipment and so on, so I guess that uh, technological jump is really <laughs> helping back there. Yeah, we don't... Uh, the E3s carry a lot of techies on board, uh, a lot of maintainers in, uh, with them as well. Um, all of our systems are pretty much integrated in, in the cabinets within the aircraft and uh, we don't really have the need to have as many maintainers on board. So, yeah, okay. we just run with a basic uh, crew of seven. So okay. compared to their crew of, I think it's about 21. <laughs> You've got a lot of uh, high-powered uh, radar and uh, signals gear and all that kind of stuff. So the classic question is, uh, how far do you have to be away from this bird before you turn everything on? We generally don't turn it on on the ground. <laughs> uh, we don't generally turn it on until we're well and truly airborne. I could imagine. <laughs> and I imagine that your escort aircraft are quite a way away in a very loose formation with you. Yeah. Well, we, we haven't flown with any escort aircraft at the moment because okay. we're still doing... Uh, sort of basic introduction to service so yeah we'll see how that goes later on. (laughs) Seeing a lot of uh, military applications now for the 737 airframe which I guess would never envisage when it was designed all those decades ago and the the thing that always fascinates me we talked before about aerial refueling can you tell us about some of the challenges that you would face learning how to take an aircraft this big that was I guess designed to be a passenger aircraft and pull it right up behind a tanker and uh, and fill it up? Yeah um, our air-to-air refueling capabilities uh, uh, I guess in its infancy, uh, we uh, we're developing that capability this year, 
but as far as I guess uh, I guess the basics of it, um, moving an aircraft uh, with with a, a fairly significant bow wave, I guess, behind uh, quite a large aircraft itself, um, has has a few issues. Uh, but you know everything's done quite uh, quite slowly and methodically. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, indicators from the tanker that let, let us know what we're doing, um, and we we you know try and sneak in between the wash of their engines uh, so we don't get battered around too much, uh, and we obviously make sure that uh, uh, that everything's done very slowly and smoothly. So, yeah. Slow and steady. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, and uh, what degree of automation is there, or is it purely done uh, in, traditionally by hand? Yeah, yeah. You won't, you wouldn't uh, be able to actually use the, you know, the commercial autopilot to finesse uh, air-to-air refueling. So that's actually done by hand and uh, by the captain. So yeah. yeah. So the most experienced guy uh, is doing it and and getting backed up by the co-pilot. Yep. Sort of the military equivalent of going into the old Kai Tak Airport in Hong Kong. Only yeah. the most experienced can do it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah it was a pretty steep turn. Oh, into yeah. There. Yeah. <laughs> Lee, Axel, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank Great you. to have Great you both here. You. Yeah. Thank you. Peter Kane, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. Thank you. Now, sir, this is your kit fox that you've built yourself. Yes, I built this aircraft in... Uh, I imported the kit in uh, 1988, and um, it took me three months to build. That was full-time. I took three months of virtually off employment to, uh, to build it. It was finished in about the middle of 1988, and uh, I hadn't flown it at this stage, and um, because it was the first Kit Fox to fly in, in Australia, I went to Oshkosh uh, in, uh, in America and met up with Dan Denny, who was president of the company, and I asked him uh, how what is the best way to land it, and he said, don't three-point it. He said, whatever you do, wheel it on. Oh, every and, time? And you won't get into any problems at okay. all. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's a wheeler every time? That's the way I landed every time. Okay. Yes. So uh, how many hours have you done in it? I've got uh, 1,300 hours in it now. Okay. And how many hours total for you? Um, oh, I suppose with training I did, I suppose around about uh, 1,500 Oh, I learnt to fly in a drifter. In a drifter, yeah. In 19, about 1982. You've, pro- you've always been flying in the in the RAOs kind of world, or the ultralights as it was well, then. Well, it drifter. was uh, yeah, the AUF. Yes. I started uh, yep. flying with the AUF, and then it, they changed their name as the okay. years went on. So yeah. whereabouts are you based? Um, I have my aeroplane at Penfield, okay. which is near Sunbury. And so do you, do you do much flying out? How far do you normally range when you're flying? Oh, I fly around Victoria. Um, I've flown up to the flying at uh, Narramon, which is up oh, at Dubba yeah. Dubba. The big um, Easter fly-in yes. for the RA Oz group. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I've been there three or four times. Yep. And uh, that's the furthest north I've gone. And the rest of my flying has been around the countryside in Victoria. Yep. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, it's a beautiful-looking aircraft, and congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Yeah, getting a bit old now, though. That's uh, 23 years, years old. Yeah. yeah. It's going to stick around for a long time. Well, uh, it, it's covered with cessonite. Yeah. And um, I was amazed. I thought when I built it, if I get 10 years out of the fabric, 
um, I'll be very happy. So this is the original fabric? And this is original fabric, oh, wow. and, it, and it's good as the day I put it on. Okay. I, I mind I, you, I keep it hanging all the time. Oh, that'll do it. So I just don't know what the life is of it. How do, how do you so, go about inspecting it and checking it? Just look for rips? Well, no, you will look for rips and, and press the material down, yeah. and if it doesn't spring back taut, well, you've got a problem, but it's not a, it's, a, it's as strong as I, when okay. I first put it on. Well, sir, I can hear a whole lot of hornets about to go, so yep. we're going to wrap this chat up. Okay. Thank you very much. No worries. Okay. We're here in the uh, recreational and general aviation area of Avalon. Uh, would you mind telling us who you are and what you're flying? Right, I'm John from Colac in Victoria, and um, I'm flying a motor glider, which I flew in here on uh, Thursday morning. It's a uh, German motor glider called a Typhoon. It's the only one of its type in Australia, actually. Wow. Uh, I've been flying for 40 years, all sorts of things, mainly gliders, and uh, recent years I've moved into motor gliders. Okay, that's pretty excellent, mate. Um, how long have you been flying and what kind of air- aircraft did you say? Um, yeah, pure gliders for many years, and uh, then I switched into motor gliders okay. in, uh, in the last 15 years, probably. So you do most of your flying out of Colac? I do, yes. Uh, independent operator out of there, and if the weather's right and I've got the time, I just go out and go flying. Nice. So you don't need to organise a tow or anything? You just get no, yourself just, up? just go up under my own power, and uh, uh, we use... Uh, we actually contact a wave formation over the upways here, okay. and uh, been to 25,000 feet in the wave over the upways. Nice. Now, how do you do that with uh, Melbourne Airport so close? Yes, no, we've got a transponder on, and uh, we... Uh, we're going to control airspace, OK? OK. Hmm. Congratulations, and uh, here's to blue skies, mate. Thank you very much. Peter Harlow from Foxbat Australia. Welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. Hello, and welcome to you too. <laughs> now, we're standing here next to your beautiful aircraft. Uh, could you tell us about it? Yeah, it's uh, made in the Ukraine, the Foxbat A22 LS, which is a light sport aircraft. Uh, we've got about 80-odd of them flying in Australia and quite a few more um, on order at the moment. It's a light sport aircraft, um, which is a sort of a category somewhere between full general aviation and ultralight or recreational yeah. flying. And I understand there's something ultra-special about this aircraft, particularly at this show. Yeah, this aeroplane is very special, totally to my surprise. All the judges came along and they've given it best recreational aircraft at Avalon. So um, I'm very happy. I didn't even know there was any kind of uh, competition for that. But, uh, yeah, they looked at it. The panel of judges said, you got the best one. So Congratulations. Very nice too. Well, as I sell the things, I suppose uh, <laughs> it's very nice to put on my website. Oh, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. And what website would that be? It's a Foxbat website, www.foxbat.com.au. Most excellent. Now, uh, Peter, if you can uh, just tell us a little bit about your flying background. Oh, gosh, goes back a long, long way. I learned to fly originally with the Royal Naval Fleet Air Arm in the UK many, many, many years ago. And I've flown, I don't know, I've lost how many different types I've flown. But I moved to Australia about 12 years ago. Since then, I've done probably a couple of thousand hours, maybe eight, 900 on the Foxbat, eight, 900 on the other aircraft over there. Um, plus general flying and uh, I've got a flying license a PPL as well as a recreational license and um, it's been great flying around Australia I deliver aircraft all over the place so it's it's a hard life oh it's tough isn't it (laughs) it's tough standing around here for two days in the sun that's the hard bit I notice you are at least it's a high wing you can yeah that's right when it rains or when it's sunny it's best and there you go folks high wing versus low wing it's easy to sit under a high wing that's absolutely right (laughs) okay Peter thanks very much for being on the show 
pleasure. Nice to meet you. Take care. Thank you, mate. Okay. And there we go, Grant. Uh, I'll tell you what, wasn't the Wedgetail crew interesting? And uh, Grant, I can tell you, poor old Lee Stanaway there, she uh, was not too comfortable about uh, standing in front of the microphones and even less comfortable about standing in front of our cameras. But uh, she did a mighty job, I thought. No, they did a great job. It was uh, wonderful. And uh, hats off to the crew there. They were able to skirt around the delicate subjects of what you can and cannot say about a brand new AEWNC platform. So, no, it was great. That was pretty well the theme for the week when we were talking to military crews there, wasn't it? It's, hey, have a look at our aircraft, but uh, <laughs> please, guys, don't ask us too much about it. Now, don't point your cameras here. Don't ask about that. And really, can we just get an angle from down here so you can't see anything interesting? Yes, point that camera at the ground. We'll do well there. But anyway, no, it was <laughs> lots of fun. And the uh, Wedgetails, uh, yeah, magnificent-looking aircraft and uh, amazing to see what they're doing with, uh, you know, such an advanced air or, you know, ageing airframe when you think about it as far as design goes with the 737. But they... <clears throat> Boeing don't like you saying that, mate. But, uh, yeah, look, the uh, 737 has been around for a while and uh, it is good to see it being built on top of the uh, absolute latest one, the 800-900 kind of airframe. But uh, amazing what you can do. Uh, let's face it, the P3 Orion was built on the Electra and now they're uh, making the Poseidon on top of the 737 and the Wedgetail the same. So, uh yeah, I think it's pretty good to see these airframes being used for as many things as they can. Yeah, now, of course, uh, we also spoke to the three gentlemen there from the RAOS tarmac. The uh, the Foxbat, Grant, I didn't actually get to have a look at that aircraft. Can you describe that for me? Yeah, mate, it's a classic uh, small LSA, you know, sport aircraft. It's a uh, high wing. It's got a, a Rotex, I believe, in the front and space for a couple of people on board, but uh, a lot of clear panels all around the sides and so on. So you get some great visibility out and people can see what's going on inside as well. So, uh, yeah, a lot of fun, that aircraft. I was pretty impressed with looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, we've still got some more, would you believe it? We've still got more Avalon content to come. That'll be coming up in future episodes. We're going to sort of stage it out a little bit. Uh, we've still got some fast jet crews that we spoke to, uh, Grant, and uh, actually that's probably just about wraps it up, actually. We've probably just about exhausted it once we've done the fast jet crews, but uh, still plenty more fantastic uh, Avalon content coming up in the next couple of shows. Now, Ben Morgan uh, joins us again. Uh, ben, you, we're going to have a bit of a uh, market wrap-up now, talking about uh, what's going on in the aviation market here in Australia. Yeah, look, some interesting stuff has been happening in the last couple of months, guys, uh, in the aircraft sales world uh, with uh, quite a number of aircraft coming on the market. And this is really following what has been a fairly quiet uh, first quarter for the Australian market. Obviously, you know, the world's coming out of the, you know, the big global financial crisis. To what degree do we think that's playing a role in that, given that we're sort of supposedly coming out the other side of that now? There's no denying it. And I don't think that you would find anyone saying otherwise. The global financial crisis has hit uh, aircraft sales sales uh, considerably. There are still pockets of aircraft, particular types and genres that are still moving with strength, but generally across the board, uh, what we uh, what we saw occur was literally uh, a lot of the medium to high-end priced uh, aircraft coming available where you had ownership pools which were heavily invested in shares and share trading. So um, the market, uh, if we look at the market as a two-year picture, you know, going back about two years ago, we were seeing a lot of bonanzas, uh, and a lot of high-end aircraft uh, ranging in price from about 160000 plus. That's changed a little bit at the moment. We're now starting to see a lot more of the, the bottom end of the market moving again. But as of April, uh, what we're starting to see now is a general movement across the board. So we're starting to see the low end of the market moving. We're also seeing the 
mid and high end. So positive signs that there could well be a recovery for general aviation uh, heading into the next three months. One of the things I've noticed uh, when I get down to particularly is uh, I quite often talk about Moorabbin because that's the airport I fly out of most of the time. A lot of the uh, flight schools down there uh, have picked up rather lucrative contracts with um, you know some of the airlines from uh, the Asian region around India, that sort of area. And they've been investing heavily in you know current generation uh, you know glass cockpit Cessna 172s and the like. And you know if you go back a few years, those those schools probably had older uh, similar aircraft, but older ones. Are we seeing those older aircraft flood into the market for sale? And what, what's happening to those aircraft? Well, before we talk about what's happening locally, let's just have a look at the say the markets in Europe and the United States. There's no denying it. Abroad, there is a huge movement towards glass cockpit aircraft. Uh, and if we have a look at it on a whole, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. The bulk of general aviation aircraft were really manufactured during the mid-1970s through to uh, mid-1980s. So for the last 20 odd years, there's been a major gap. There's a huge gap in aircraft manufacturing. Uh, and I guess airline training standards have also moved on in that 20 odd year period. We now have uh, modern glass cockpit airliners and the airline training environment want that uh, brought in right from the early PPL stage through to CPL stage. So they don't want pilots being taught to fly anymore on uh, steam gauge airplanes. So what we're seeing locally, and it really started about uh, a year and a half, two years ago, uh, is a lot more introduction of the glass cockpit 172s and uh, and various aircraft, which is a fantastic thing. Of course, the only downside to this, uh, if there is one, is the fact that we are now starting to see for the first time uh, in probably close to 40 years, the value of secondhand aircraft, predominantly your Cessnas and Pipers and whatnot in that older age bracket. So let's, let's just call it 1970s. We're now starting to see those aircraft retreat in price. So that will probably be a continuing trend uh, as more and more new aircraft also hit the market. But also in Australia, we've been hit with a bit of a double whammy and that is the value of the Aussie dollar. Um, it's clear that at a dollar, uh, I think it's a dollar four or something at the moment, uh, with the dollar trading so strong, aircraft overseas are a very attractive uh, item. Uh, you can see uh, through most of the websites internationally that are advertising aircraft, uh, Cessna 172s and Pipers and Bonanzas and whatnot, down at prices which we've never seen uh, before in Australia. So that's going to be putting, I guess, backward pressure uh, on prices here at home. Well, you know, it's interesting, Ben, that um, those aircraft are coming down. There was a time where those aircraft, because they weren't making them anymore, were, you know, if they were kept in reasonable nick, were um, going up in value as they got older, which is, you know... <laughs> Yeah. kind of something you don't normally see. But uh, one of the things I, w- I was going to ask about was, you know, one of the things I've noticed since getting into this podcast and re-engaging with aviation is the, you know, the, the, the emergence of the uh, RALs, the LSA category of aircraft. I mean, what's, what sort of um, market share do they hold these days? And, and anecdotally, I would say that looks to be increasing. Massive. I think that's the only word we can, we can give it, massive. What the guys in RAA have achieved in the last five years is absolutely significant and it is really demonstrating one clear fact. People who are flying for the purpose of recreation and enjoyment are seeking avenues to do so that are affordable and achievable. And I think what RAA has demonstrated here in Australia is that um, there is a very strong recreational pilot and aircraft ownership pool, uh, and we're seeing some fantastic types. I mean, we have some incredible light sport aircraft uh, on the, I guess, the sales lineup now in Australia that we've never before seen. Uh, And what we're seeing is we're seeing those uh, products being offered to market at fantastic prices. Uh, and just coming back to an earlier comment, this is one of the big positive spin-offs as I now see in general aviation, and that is for the first time we now have such an influx of later model aircraft that our older aircraft are now starting to retreat in value to yeah. a point where owning an aeroplane again is becoming a realistically affordable 
goal. So, you know, the old saying, there is always positivity and opportunity in devastation. Uh, that <laughs> definitely exists here in aviation. And I think what we're going to see is we're going to see an upswing towards the end of the year as aircraft prices come back to a level where uh, people are saying, okay, look, you know, I can afford to do that. And we start getting those new entrants into the market. Yeah, well, it's definitely the case that in the past, you know, you could still get a, a reasonably premium price if your aircraft was kept in good maintenance, no matter how old it was, so long as you were kept up with the ADs and all that. But now, as you're saying, you've got these brand new aircraft. I mean, for not a lot of money, you can get a two-seat aircraft that's bigger than a Cessna 152 and go train in it. So what price a 152? Who needs it is, is one attitude that we're hearing out there. Yeah, look, and one of the other things, I guess, you know, you, you've got price, uh, you've got the cost of maintenance. The cost of fuel is also another major contributor to aircraft values at the moment. Uh, we're seeing Avgas. Uh, it's starting to go through the roof in price. We've already seen a closure of one refinery in Sydney. There is rumour already afoot that the uh, Melbourne refinery is going to close. If that is the case, uh, we as a country will be importing our Avgas and we could expect that the price of Avgas could possibly go another 35 to 40% higher. So uh, light sport aircraft uh, with smaller engines and far more economic fuel are going to become more and more popular and I would also argue probably more valuable as we move forward into the end of this year. Not to mention the fact they can also, many of them, run on uh, MoGas, on unleaded. That's yeah, well, that's certainly an option. Way cheaper again. One of the interesting things, of course, that we get to do at Aviation Advertiser is uh, we obviously get to see the aircraft as they first come on the market. Uh, and we get some really interesting and exciting types uh, from week to week being placed up on the uh, the website for sale. And uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've had a couple of unique airplanes and one that I really want to point out, which is a little Cassett 3M uh, race plane. Uh, oh, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. I mean, this is an exciting little airplane. It's a single oh, seat, <laughs> single seat, fully aerobatic, uh, high performance race plane. But this particular uh, aircraft was one of a batch that I believe, if I'm correct, uh, was manufactured um, and put into competition down at the Sky Race. If you remember, there was a, a mm. uh, aviation race event which was held down in Tasmania. It was the one-of-a-kind event in Australia, uh, and it unfortunately was not repeated. But I believe this is one of the aircraft that competed. So not oh, only wow. an interesting aeroplane, but a, a fairly historic one as well. Yeah, no, because you see cassettes in various classes over in Reno, and there's a couple of the guys, Wasabi Air Racers, are out there running their own version of a cassette. Very, and I've seen a couple on the flight line at various air shows and airports. They're, they're great-looking aircraft. Now, another reason, boys, well, I, why I've picked this aircraft out is uh, we at Aviation Advertiser have just acquired a Cassette 3M racer. And uh, the aircraft uh, is going to be painted by the guys out at PG Aviation at Cowra. Uh, it is going to be given a Aviation Advertiser red Formula One uh, race plane scheme. And cool. uh, people will soon be able to see this little aeroplane out and about doing air show performances uh, at the different events. So uh, this one online has a little brother and uh, we'll be looking forward to seeing it out there. Are you going to do something similar with the uh, one of the other more unique aircraft that's on your list? I was looking through the other day and uh, it caught my eye and I had to scroll back and go, what the heck is that? And sure enough, it was a two-seat Harrier jump jet from the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what what not? Uh, what a better way uh, to get around Australia than your own personal Harrier? Just a little runabout. Certainly, that's somewhat it. noisy and uh, fuel sucking. That's for sure. It'll look pretty good in a red outfit. Guys, I'm seeing the picture right now. Suburban Sydney. It's parked right in the driveway next to a terrace house, and uh, you know it's the it's the seven a.m. crawl, and you go out and. <laughs> You hit the uh, spool it up, hit the igniters. 
and uh, wake just, up the neighbourhood. <laughs> that's right. Just VTOL straight out of the front yard and head down to the office. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, look. And I'm sure, I'm sure we could have that STC to run on unleaded too. Why, yes, I do have a flying car. <laughs> yeah, just uh, you, you certainly wouldn't want your uh, visa card being used in any respect. Uh, no. But it, look, what an interesting aeroplane. It's, uh, it's on offer from a company out of the uh, United uh, Kingdom. And uh, I believe it's only a static aircraft, but not a lot of these Harriers have actually made it out into civil hands. And uh, like all things, uh, you never know where it could go. It may possibly be the start of a restoration project somewhere, but uh, either way, a very, very interesting aeroplane. I believe Art Knoll, I think it is, has one over in the USA, doesn't he? That's right. It's been on the airshow circuit for a couple of years now after I think it had about a a $4.5 million US dollar restoration. And uh, it's an impressive aeroplane to see if you do get to sit in person. They reckon it's even noisy noisier than a B1B. Oh, a very, very loud machine. The uh, I think it's a, uh, a Rolls-Royce Pegasus. Yes. Uh, that's installed in the aircraft, so a very, uh, a very thirsty, very noisy engine. Excellent, Indeed. excellent. And I see we've got a couple of Nanchangs on there listed for sale at the moment, uh, amongst other sort of uh, classic aircraft. Yeah, look, the Nanchang tends to be a favourite with the Warbird boys, uh, a very capable uh, aircraft, easy to fly, but also a very pleasant aerobatic aeroplane. And we do see in numbers from time to time, uh, along with the Yak-52s and the fives as well. So uh, a reasonable mix uh, of Warbird aircraft, even some uh, windshields out there in the market at the moment and some CT4s as well. Excellent, excellent. And, uh, of course, people can go to uh, the aviationadvertiser.com.au website, click on Classifieds, and uh, if you're in the market for an aircraft, well, uh, you know, looking there, and, of course, being a Cessna 172 driver myself, it's interesting to see that you can pick them up for under the $100,000 Australian mark now. So that is, uh, that's encouraging in many respects. Not that I've got that much to spend, but maybe Grant does. <laughs> oh, mate, you've got the wrong balloon pilot here, mate. <laughs> but uh, I tell you, the, uh, the it's interesting, the, the Nanchang, I was speaking to a Nanchang pilot a year or so ago, and he said it was sort of like the same economy as running at a 182 but look cooler food for thought buddy i think i'll i think i'll stick with the 172 <laughs> well okay we might leave the market wrap there for this one and in fact uh, we might just wrap up the episode there grant we've got to get this one edited and get it out quickly before we head off to netfly uh yeah. we're going to be pretty busy up there at netfly we'll be there on the friday and the saturday and uh, we'd certainly love any of our listeners to uh, let us know if they're going to be there playing crazy down under at gmail.com or of course uh, let us know via twitter pcdu um we should be up there i guess grant friday around the well, mid-morning mark yeah 10 a.m or so i think we're going to get it and hit the grounds and see what's going down and Stay there until Saturday Ava and then make the long trek back. I've got to be back in time to uh, crew the balloons uh, on the Monday morning. So, uh, yeah. yeah, we'll come back on the Saturday night. Yeah, and actually, Ben and the uh, Aviation Advertiser crew are going to be there as well. They might be sick of us uh, by the time they finish because we're going to mooch around with them for most of the time. Yeah, but you never know. They may actually wind up liking us even more after the show, although yeah, I don't know who could do that. But, uh, Ben, tell us where you're going to be, mate. Where are we going to be hanging out in the uh, great airfield of tomorrow? We will be located in the... Hangar Complex, the Tamora Aviation Museum Hangar Complex will be in front of the A37 Dragonfly and right next to the Brumby Aircraft. Which team. I believe are putting together a high wing, especially to bring that fly. <laughs> they are, and I have also organised for you two to go for a flight in the Brumby LSA. So the guys are going to take you to each for a run in the aircraft so that you can do a uh, a bit of a review of what you think of Australia's uh, homegrown, homebred uh, Brumby. Cool, because the first time I met it, I was helping the, uh, the pilot of the prototype get it out of, it had bogged itself slightly in some grass when it was parked overnight at Avalon Airshow. 
And I was working the, tarm- the uh, Warbirds tarmac and was there early enough to help them pull it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, now, just a bit of uh, housekeeping before we do finish, though. You may remember in the last episode we mentioned we'd be talking to Ben Merkenhoff about his trip uh, across Australia and back uh, raising funds for heart research in his uh, rather immaculate Boeing Stearman. Unfortunately, we've had to postpone that one yet again. Uh, Ben's been unfortunate enough to be the uh, victim of a, uh, looks like a burglary at his hangar. We don't have any details about uh, exactly what's been taken, but we certainly wish Ben all the best uh, and we'll uh, tee him up for uh, for an, an interview a bit later on when he's got things sorted out. So, uh, Grant, that's uh, not good news, but uh, all is not lost, hopefully. Yeah, I certainly hope it... Uh, it sounds like it was a fair bit of stuff got taken out of his hangar, so I hope he's doing okay. And, uh, yeah, good luck, Ben, both uh, getting it back and uh, tracking down those who did it. Yeah, well, as Ben's going in all directions, uh, Ben Morgan, it's been a very heavy episode. Thank you for the uh, huge contribution you've made to this show, and uh, uh, I think it's been a, a rather serious one. We haven't done an edgy show like this for a while, so we really appreciate you uh, dropping in to let us know what's going on in the world of aviation advocacy and uh, we'll, we'll certainly be uh, pursuing that going into the future fantastic guys there's no problems at all it's always a pleasure thanks very much mate and uh, well we're about to uh, pull up stumps and uh, pack the vehicle and get ready to head up to tomorrow we certainly hope we'll see you there don't forget also to uh, visit the on track system there at uh, casa.gov slash on track and we'd, uh, we'd really uh, encourage you to uh, let us know uh, what you think of the service uh, casa's put a lot of work into that and i know they're very keen for your feedback so that wraps up episode 62 of playing crazy down under thanks very much for listening we certainly hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon with our next episode, but until then, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts. You've been listening to Plain Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.plaincrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. We are live. Again? Kick in the guts, Trev. Okay. You're going to chop and edit throughout this thing, are you? Absolutely. Well, probably. Absolutely. Good idea. It's my uh, my job to make myself sound good, and if, if you guys sound good at the end of it, well, we've done well <laughs> as well. Well, that raises immediately the situation where you've – sorry, mate, I'll just wait for that bus to go by, and we'll start that one again. Sorry, right, guys. Right on time. Yeah, they're good, aren't they?
No problems, guys, and uh, we'll be back after this ad break with uh, this lovely girl next to me. Her name's Janine. She's got size D jokes. That wasn't what I had in mind, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it does make for a good blooper, I think I'll say. Anything. Sorry. <laughs> okay. But now that you're over the hump and you're into the fun part of life, he says, looking back fondly upon 40 years, oh, it was so long ago, <laughs> it's, uh, it's time to discuss something very topical going on here in Australia, and that's the whole aspect of uh, oh. airport telephones going off, getting in the way. Hello? I'm sorry, sir, your shoe is ringing. Hi. And the emphasis is on mooch. <laughs> 